been trying, woman a child, could make it easy, could live in denial. We saw the world end, but it keeps spinning. Whether we're losing, whether we're winning, and they start to fail. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, February 21st, 2021. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. It's it's not actually good morning, is it? No, it's it's not. You'll never know. It's yeah. morning somewhere in the world. <laughs> it <That's> is. Right. <laughs> that other voice you hear is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of KestAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good, Good evening again. Good evening. <laughs> yes, I. Um, so it's a little odd because I think that this is the first time in the hit in eleven years, two thousand some odd shows that we've recorded on a Saturday evening, and and the reason we are doing that is because our very special guest is with us. Lauren Gunderson is with us. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. I am so delighted to be here. Well, let me tell, uh, you know, I'm going to read a little bit of your bio here just to get people familiar with, uh, with you if they don't know you, but it's impossible not to know you because Lauren's been one of the most produced playwrights in America since 2015. She tops the list twice, including 2019-2020. She's the two-time winner of the Steinberg Acta New Play Award. Uh, for I and You, that always throws me when I say I and You, <laughs> and the Book of Will, the winner of the Lanford Wilson Award and the Otis Guernsey New Voices Award. So, and you're also the Mellon Foundation's residency at the uh, Marin Theater, Com- uh, the Marin Theater Company. Excuse me. Yeah. So, tell me. You are Broadway's best kept secret. Why is that? <laughs> um, well, I, I have no idea how to answer that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, perhaps it is because I have, I'm so grateful that I have a very um, <clears throat> a full career in, in regional theater. And, you know, this country is a big one. So there's amazing corners um, of this country that house incredible theaters and who do new work and and every manner of play that I have dreamed up has found a home and um, you know I'm, I'm in California now but I'm from Atlanta so I have homes both in both of those states and in and Oregon and and Colorado and you know anyway there's the, it's it's a wide world out there so I'm I'm happy that I, I get to play in a very very big sandbox. Well, uh, it started with the Young Playwrights Festival, right? That that's where you got your it, particular start. 
Yeah, yeah. I was. I started this really young. I, I knew I wanted to be a writer um, when I was in middle school, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I faithfully got my dramatist uh, guild source book um, even when I was fourteen, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, was was scoping it out on my living room floor, um, dreaming of one day, you know, talking to folks like you about about a long career in the theater. Um, but you know that that. The organization does so much to connect folks who aren't in New York and, you know, in, in Georgia and my living room, I'm able to see these opportunities. And one of them was the Young Playwrights Festival uh, for writers under 18. So I wrote a little play and sent it to them and they said, hey, you should, you know, c- come here. You, you won something. <laughs> so what was it about and what was it called? It was a play called Parts They Called Deep. And it was about three Southern women, um, a daughter, mom, and a grandmother in a Winnebago driving to Florida to bury her uncle, (laughs) which sounds not fun, but it was raucous and wild and started a long tradition of my own personal canon of writing about dead people (laughs) who are, who magically show up on stage. So, so in fact, did you have this experience in real life? (laughs) <laughs> I did, actually not the dead person kind of hanging out, uh-huh. but the Winnebago. Yes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> my my family transported a grandparent or two from one state to another via the the comforts of of the Winnebago. So it, mm-hmm. it was a memory that stuck and felt dramatic and felt personal and a story that I certainly could tell. And uh, so it started this this career of telling uh, primarily women's stories, but ones that are highly theatrical and have big wild, fantastic endings that kind of get, get a bit meta theatrical at the end. So it all started, it all started there. (laughs) Uh, Lauren, uh, I note that you won the Lanford Wilson award among your many. Uh, Did you ever get to meet him? I did not. Oh, sadly, wouldn't that have been amazing? Yeah, I, I've told this story before, but but you aren't on the podcast, so maybe I can mention it again. I met him late in life uh, at his home in Sag Harbor through mutual friends, and I was, I guess, the most theater, uh, you know, the, the most into theater of the group. So he <laughs> he just really, you know, he kind of we latched onto each other, oh, and wow. uh, and he showed me around uh, the house and. And at some point we were in his, just in his office uh, up, upstairs somewhere. And, 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 and there was the Pulitzer uh, on mm. his, and he said, Oh, and, uh, and there's that he goes, and yeah, and here's this. <laughs> just, <laughs> and I was like, that. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't think I asked to hold it, but. It was well, nice. this brings up a good point though. Um, who were your heroes growing up as, as playwrights? Oh my gosh. Um, many. I mean, I, I started with the, the kind of more classical or modern classical um, options that are often given in middle school and high school. So of course, Shakespeare has been a great love. Not that I love all of his work, but because I find there's always a conversation and an argument to be had. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so that um, I think Tennessee Williams was probably one of the biggest influences early on. Um, and I, I fancied myself an actor at, at first. And so I ended up playing all of these like great Tennessee Williams roles that I was not old enough to play. Mm-hmm. But once you do that, um, you can really sense the power of the language and and what he was able to accomplish. Um, and then I kind of realized like, wow, I've been given a lot of guys. Like, why, why don't we read any women? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are there women who write plays? Mm-hmm. Says, says middle school are in, um, and then, of course, I have to to find them. I mean, the the, the only ones that really you're you're given um, or I, I was 20 or 30 years ago was um, 
Lorraine Hansberry, yeah. um, which, you know, not certainly was some of the best, um, one of the best writers of, 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 uh, of in our country, in our history. But um, so I used her as a jumping off point and quickly found Lynn Nottage and Paula Vogel, Sarah Rules, The Clean House was kind of very popular when I was in high school and I was able uh-huh. to find her. And um, and so it, it became, um, even just between those three women, <clears throat> that's a lot of diversity of, of style and aesthetic and um, humor and humanity. So I, I am forever grateful. I actually got to, I was on a, um, an, a, a panel with, with Sarah, Sarah Roll uh, a couple months ago. And I, I just had to say, you know, before we went on officially, I just had to gush and <laughs> <laughs> go on and on about, about how powerful her, her, her work in particular was. And, and as, as well as Paula Vogel, because um, I mean, and, and Lynn too, I mean, you, you, you can't choose there. They're all my favorite, but um, th- I feel like they were each able to show me how to break the thing that I thought couldn't be broken. And by breaking it, hmm. um, you see how many, you know, splintered prismatic pieces of our art form there are to play with and how many colors are there actually there and how many ways to use theater's form and stage directions and wild mythology and and history and so I I just I absorbed as much as I could from them um and again combined with Tennessee Williams and Shakespeare that's quite a a concoction that's the cocktail of, of theater options there so I was um I was happily drunk on that for most of my childhood <laughs> Oh, I can appreciate that. Now, the question becomes, um, you mentioned history, and here Jeanette Rankin comes into play. Um, now, when you go to, uh, and you have, of course, but uh, if our listeners were to go to Jeanette Rankin's website, they would see Jeanette who? They make it very clear that this is not a famous woman. Uh, so tell us about her and how you discovered her. Sure. Well, I discovered her through my uh, sister, friend, colleague, Ari Afsar, who is an incredible singer, songwriter, performer, um, and, uh, and now is writing a musical with me about this woman. And she and I were connected um, in kind of a, a, an odd way, but found each other. And she said, have you ever heard of Jeanette Rankin? And I thought myself pretty savvy, feminist, politically engaged <laughs> art activist person. And I had no idea who it was. Turns yeah. out as the very first um, female identifying congressperson ever to be elected um, in the United States. And she was from Montana. She was elected turn of the century. Um, so it's this wild story of this kind of improbable woman um, who is elected and becomes the first. Uh, so she, I had no idea who this was. She said, we'll read about her. I think there's a TV show here. Um, mm. And Ari had written a couple of songs, kind of a concept album. And then I said, this is not a TV show. This is, I mean, it might be, but it is also mm. a musical and we need to write it right now. So we started this process of telling Jeanette's story and, you know, what's, what's been interesting about it. Um, and of course, COVID did what it did to so many um, mm. new projects, new musicals, put it on hold. But in that time, um, you know, right before the summer before all of this madness, we were so fortunate to be at the O'Neill to develop the, the musical there. Um, uh, Aaron Ortman is our director, and we just discovered so much, uh, so many facets. And what's become really important is that this actually is not just a show about Jeanette. It's a show about how Jeanette's legacy and the legacy of people who've been excluded from power in all the, the ways, um, how we show up today. So it is this really cool dance of then and now and her and us. And um, I continue to discover new ways to make theater and new ways to know myself and new ways to, to be in, you know, purposeful theatrical conversation with my colleagues through that 
wild little musical that not many people have actually seen yet. (laughs) (laughs) But what's really remarkable about this character, this woman, was the fact that she was elected to Congress before the women had the vote. Oh, my God. Isn't that the most wonderful fact? I mean, terrible, but wonderful, because how does she get into Congress hmm. without, you know, it, it, it just it baffles. Um, but it's, again, in that kind of baffling uh, crack that you can really open up the history of America and see what well, actually women could vote in different states before they could vote federally. And how does that work? How did they get that right? How did she get elected um, in this way? And and then here she comes, the only woman to vote on women getting the right to vote. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I just, I find her story so amazing. Um, And she was, uh, although she didn't come out herself or name herself in that way, it is pretty obvious that nowadays she would have been considered queer. Um, so we're telling that story of, um, in some ways, it's it's not just the first woman elected, it's the first queer woman, which is e- even more interesting and, and unique and powerful. So there's, there's a lot going on. And Ari's music is absolutely stunning. She just released uh, her concept album um, uh, of five really f- or five or six or anyway, however many uh, amazing kind of remixed and redone songs from the musical. So we are putting the musical out in the world in the ways that we can <laughs> right now before we can get back to that blissful place of the rehearsal room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, she was quite the pacifist. Mm-hmm. Um, um, she did not want uh, the country to get involved with World War One, and even World War II she wasn't for, even mm-hmm. after the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Do you share views like this? Is this one of the things you can relate to, or do you feel, despite this, she certainly deserves a platform and a forum? Yeah, I mean, I think for certainly for World War One, that was um, mm-hmm. that was very hard for her. Uh, and her her pacifism was deep rooted. It was very much connected to um, workers' rights, women's rights, the rights of of, of children, um, because so often those were the people who served on the front lines. And actually, they were the ones in the coffins, not the senators' kids, not the, the you know mm, the head mm. head foreman's son. Sure. It was. This is the poor people. Um, sure. So she really had that as her focus almost her whole career, and that's part of why she was so. Um, uh, such a valiant uh, suffragist as well, because she knew that that's how women could actually control their lives and have better fortunes and not depend on men to, um, to, 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 to give them the, the life that they wanted for their, their, their kids um, and be able to take care of themselves. So I think all of these things are really interestingly connected. Um, and that's part of what, you know, the, the, a musical is only so long. So I feel like the talkbacks after the musical are going to be <laughs> quite uh, dense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in, in the, the course of the play at the moment, we talk about how, how these similar protests and calls for justice and calls for just being able to see people for who they are and say, you need this kind of help that this person may not need, how those are the same things we're going through now and in different ways. It's it's certainly the call for justice is almost the same call, just with a different Mm. protagonist. So um, that's part of it. But yes, I, I think that was one of the most interesting things about her is um, for World War One, she was one of, I think, 50 um, Congress people who voted against the war. She was the one who was most vilified for it as being unpatriotic and this weak, emotional woman who couldn't come to, you know, make herself vote for violence. And, and in some ways it was used against um, the feminist movement for, for a while. Sure. But World War II is a more complex question that our musical doesn't quite hit because we, we, we cut it off. But I, I, I encourage the conversation about her legacy. It's amazing for me to listen to you talking about this right now because I just caught up with the movie Suffragette. Oh. And of course, that's England, but, you know, it's, it's not the same issue. And it's, it's chilling. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, I, oh, I gosh. have. Oh, gosh. 
Wow. And interestingly, you know, uh, the last show that I had in New York was um, The Half-Life of Marie Curie with Audible off, mm-hmm. off Broadway. And mm-hmm. that one of the characters there, Hertha Ayrton, was a British suffragist. And so uh, uh, in some ways, I, I come back to the same um, really in- important kind of seminal moment uh, that was shared in across a couple continents for women having the right to have a say in their leaders and their future. And thank you for bringing up that play, because I have to say you give great title. <laughs> I love that title, Thank and then so much. There are a couple oh. of others that obviously the the Shakespeare influence uh, exit exit pursued by a bear. I was surprised <laughs> no one took that one already. I was like, I'm taking That's it. That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and natural shocks. Yes, that what a great title you. that is. Yeah. A little Hamlet, why not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, for that matter, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy. Uh, how'd you get interested in the Peter Pan story? Were you a little girl and heard it then, or what? I, I remember reading it and I was always a little miffed because I was, as you might be able to deduce, I was a little, kind of a spunky little girl, a bit of a tomboy. And so the kind of classic windy character fawning over Peter and being kind of, you know, weak and swept off her feet felt a little like, wow, what use is that? <laughs> um, but so when, when Alan Paul um, and the folks at Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. approached me about adapting it, at first I was like, oh, oh no, 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 that play is uh-huh. sexist and racist and absolutely not. Let's, I'm not touching that with a tinfoil pole. Um, and then they said, well, the, the job would be to fix it. Can you adapt it in a way that calls out those things or replaces them? Um, and I said, well... All right. I kind of gave it a, gave it a couple weeks thoughts. And, and then I, I said, well, all right, now, now I have to, I'm going to fix this thing. Damn it. And what I could, what I didn't know is that it was actually a play first. I never knew that. Um, so it was this kind of incredible play that actually wasn't for kids. It was for adults. Mm-hmm. This fantastic theatrical experience that was kind of a Christmas wonderland um, in, in the UK um, when it first came out uh, turn of the century. And so it, it, it really occurred to me that we can bring that part back to it, um, that it is for uh, many generations, not just this kind of kid's story. And then, of course, I turned Wendy into a scientist. (laughs) And uh, Tiger Lily, I think, is the the greatest work. And that was certainly in collaboration with uh, several Indigenous consultants um, and our fabulous actor, Isabella Starleblanc, who played Tiger Lily and was very generous in her wisdom and, and sharing how to create that character full of agency and humor and grit. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was, it, I actually, I adore that adaptation. It's so much fun and it's, it's feisty too. So I think we, we kind of <laughs> turned a lot of heads with that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was a great one. Could I pull you back to, uh, uh, back to your bio because sure. you, um, you were born and raised in, uh, in Atlanta or right in the Atlanta area. Yeah. And then you went to Emory, which is Coca-Cola University in, in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, and, and, but yet, um, it, it so identifies with the South. And yeah. yet you, you're, you sound very progressive <laughs> and I wonder how that, how that worked for you against you. And, and, and we talked about the young, uh, the young Lauren and uh, the dramatist guild uh, at 14 <laughs> years old. I, where did this theater come from? Do your parents have an interest in theater? Do you have brothers and sisters? What, <laughs> what, tell me a little bit about that. I laugh because absolutely not. Um, I'm the oldest. My younger sister, I tried to, to kind of capture her into <laughs> theater's web, but she refused um, heartily early on. My my parents, yeah, no, they just were great parents because I said I really believe in this. And I 
I, I want to, something about theater is just has a powerful gravity over me and they could feel that. I think they assumed um, like I did that it was going to be acting or performance, but um, quickly felt like, oh, I think there's way more power and the, the opportunity to do something new as a writer um, than as an actor. And I wasn't that good as an actor, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing about the South, as you can tell from this election, is it is purple. It's not red. Um, and I grew up in a very blue corner of um, actually the same county, DeKalb <laughs> County, that turned George mm-hmm. blue. That's my mm-hmm. hometown. So mm-hmm. yeehaw. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the Atlanta theater community was, uh, you know, it was, it was small but mighty back then. And it is quite large and, and impressive now. And I, I still have uh, deep roots there. So the Atlanta theater community taught me. Um, I remember Chris Coleman, who is now the artistic director of Denver Center. Um, I remember seeing him on stage playing Hamlet when I was about 14 or 15. That was actually what I did for my 50th birthday was mm-hmm. <laughs> take all my girlfriends to see Hamlet, which um, that's a certain kind of friend. <laughs> that will do that. To you. But, um, but, you know, so I, I, I kind of just, I always wanted to grow up fast, you know, and I, I felt being in that, in the theater was a way to just, I couldn't, I couldn't wait for that next project, that next play, the next chance to see, um, well, wow, how, who wrote that? How did they write that? I want to write something like that. And it just, I felt uh, such electricity. Like I still do. It's the reason why I still do it. Um, that kind of delight and awe and wonder of it. Um, but yeah, so that was, the, I mean, I, I think I, I don't tend to write a ton about the South. I, I did early on and Exit of Pursued by Our Bears is about the South and a couple of different um couple of different plays, uh, but I'm, I'm still w- waiting to write my big Southern family <laughs> drama. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, well, earlier you mentioned Tennessee Williams, and then you also mentioned meta meta theatrical uh, mm-hmm. writing. Okay. And I was, I, I have to add, do you know the Christopher Durang play for whom the Southern mm-hmm. bell tolls? No, I don't. <laughs> oh, I, Lord. Was just, I was just thinking of that myself. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, and the reason we're thinking of it now is because it's going to be done here at uh, Food for Thought, the Food okay. for Thought series. But you should, oh gosh, you should at least read that. You would love it. <laughs> Fun. Very, very good. Well, and I, I will also say being a Southerner, um, you know, we take a lot of pride in our literature. Our um, Flannery O'Connor was sure. one of the, actually one sure. of the bigger influences on my playwriting, even though she doesn't mm. write plays, because the short story I find works like a great play. It has, I, 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 I'm thirsty for the the kind of twists and the just gut punch that she gives you at the end of her short stories. And mm. in many ways, I feel like those are my most successful plays um, are the ones that have that surprise that like, oh my gosh, it's been there the whole time. How could I have not seen this? And here it is. And it's, so you know, the, the, the dark power of her short, um, short fiction certainly influenced me too. So you uh, wrap up at Emory with uh, a, a sort of an English lit degree. Uh, and yeah. you head to New York to Tisch uh, for mm-hmm. graduate school. Um, you know, uh, was that something that you thought was a natural progression for you? Was it immediate or did you take some time in between or how did you get from there to there? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought in high school that I would go to New York right away. It just felt like me, but then it didn't. I had kind of had the chance, but I didn't even apply to schools in New York. Um, and I, I'm kind of grateful for that because I, I needed a little bit more of that on-ramp, you know, to to figure out what was me, what was my voice, what what did I want to do with theater. 
Um, and I learned a lot of that at Emory University, go Emory. Um, but I also, <laughs> one of my favorite theater classes that I took at Emory was in mime. So you're talking <laughs> to not a bad mime, actually, <laughs> um, which is a, a, a bit of fun, you know, cocktail party <laughs> factoid, mm. but but, you know, any any version of performance, especially one where you don't have language, teaches you a whole different layer of theater's power. So actually, to this day, my very favorite parts, not just my plays, but any well-written play, are the, st- uh, the stuff in between the lines, the looks, the glances, the stuff, you know, a really great actor has electricity through their fingertips the whole time and their body language can tell the whole play. And so, you know, playing with that in a mime class, <laughs> um, that perhaps is a little bit of a grand leap to from one to the other, but but I, I still think of of those lessons. Um, and certainly after I had kids, it was it's it's an easy car trick when they're whining in the car to do a little do a little mime to to keep them, <laughs> keep them quiet. Um, but yeah, and you know, so I it, coming to New York was was um, was incredibly powerful and important, and felt like the natural place to be. And I learned so much. I still obviously love being in New York and just the. I mean, I, I think what was actually most new to me was that so many people had theater as a natural and organic part of their lives, whereas in Atlanta, it wasn't. It was kind of like, oh, you're going to go to a play? This mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. who's doing mm-hmm. a play? You know, it, mm-hmm. And of course, as you know, New Yorkers just go, which play are you seeing this week? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, it's mm-hmm. so... Um, uh, it's very much like London is the only other city that, that feels like that to me. And so that that was this um, just a drowning and inundation, a tidal wave of this art form I love so much was so delightful. Drown, drowning sounds bad, but it was good. <laughs> a good drowning. <laughs> um, had you been here? Had you been here at all before you went to uh, uh, Tish? Yeah, a couple of times. Uh-huh. A couple of times. Original cast of Lion King. Saw that uh-huh. for my birthday in high school and mm-hmm. a couple of, saw some rent and, you know, those kind of. <laughs> obvious choices but then of course discovering the kind of wonderful niche of various off-broadway companies and um yeah so it was I, the, the two and a half years three years that i was there were, were pretty formidable um but you know you also learn things kind of weird categorizations that i didn't think were um were categories in, in other cities I've, I've worked in that seemed to be this kind of uptown downtown um, divide and Broadway and and everything else um, were things that I hadn't really considered about how those things work and the different tastes and aesthetics that were kind of showed up and so um, it it's, it's continues to be a, an interesting um, uh, yeah just like why why is that why are certain plays uh, for this group and not this group or you know I, I I'm 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 always delighted to to dig into those <laughs> realities. Well, obviously, you dig very well into it, given that you produce so much. Now, what is the play that really puts you over the top in terms mm-hmm. of being produced, um, the most produced playwright in the country? Um, it, was, it was probably I and you. Um, I had some some great luck. One of my first big commissions was South Coast Rec, so I'll always be grateful to them for this play, Emily, um, which continues to have a, a, a little life, which I, I, I love those plays. That was kind of one of the more wild ones. And then... Um, so oh, tell us why. Tell us why. For Emily, um, <clears throat> basically, so it's, a, it's one of my kind of uh, history, science, feminist plays uh, about a true story about a, a scientist named Emily du Chatelet, who is French, a lover of Voltaire's for 10 years. She basically um, helped uh, normalize the Newton's theories um, back when Newton was kind of fresh and new. And who is this Isaac Newton guy? <laughs> um, mm. 
And she was this incredibly ingenious mathematician and physicist before there was really a word for physicist. They called it a natural scientist or a natural philosopher. Um, and so the play is about her um, looking at her life right before she dies and kind of looking at all her choices, almost like a scientist looks at a, an experiment um, to, and, and redoes the experiment to see if they can prove the same thing. Um, and it was, it, it just, I just kind of defied a lot of things I was told, <laughs> like plays were supposed to be. Um, <clears throat> direct address, not direct address. She's in the role of herself and then somebody else takes up with that role and she's watching it. And it's just, it's this wild, delightful play that I, I'm quite proud of um, to this day. And I think mm-hmm. still teaches me uh, a lot when I, when I look back at it. Um, <clears throat> But I had a similar instinct with one of the, the next plays, which is called Exit Pursued by a Bear, this Southern farce uh, <laughs> about domestic abuse. Like those things should not be in the same sentence. And yet uh-huh. I was just like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just write the damn thing as I hear it because I think it makes sense. And if I stop telling myself, well, but I don't know if you've, I've ever seen anything like this. You know, what play is this like? Who cares what it's like? It's it's like itself. Let's just write it. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was one I was really proud of too. And then Silent Skies, another science lady play. A lot of science lady plays. Um, <laughs> and then I and You is the one that probably wa- got the biggest um, <clears throat> groundswell. And, you know, it actually came out of a conversation with my then agent, who's now my manager, Karine Hyun. It's just a brilliant theater mind. And she um, has this great way of kind of saying, yes, I love what you do, Lauren. Also, what's the next thing? What's the thing you haven't done before? What's what's the thought experiment that you can hold in your head and see what pops out? And she basically was like, I love your science lady plays. Love those history plays. What's something contemporary, producible, small, emotional, and something you haven't seen before? And so out of that um, prompt came I Knew, which is a story about two teenagers um, doing a class assignment in a, a girl's room. We find out pretty quickly that she is ill with a, um, a pretty severe terminal uh, diagnosis. And that sounds incredibly boring and tedious. <laughs> and it was my job to make sure it was the opposite of that, that it was riveting and suspenseful and certainly has the biggest Flannery O'Connor twist at the end that I could. Uh-huh. So that's, I think, why people like it. Um, and it, it was the first uh, play of mine that won the Steinberg and it was finalist for Susan Smith Blackburn and has been produced, I mean, hundreds of times all over the world at this point, which is um, incredibly gratifying. All right. All over the world. In fact, in foreign languages. I think so. Yeah. And it was just released. Um, uh, Bloomsbury, Methuen drama in the UK just released it as a modern classic, um, which is um, pretty. Um, that's, that's, that's what you I'm bet. Asking. You bet. Uh, <laughs> the question becomes, uh, have you seen a foreign production of it? Um, no, no, I haven't. No. Well, the only one is in the UK, so I haven't seen it um, in a different language yet. But uh-huh, uh-huh. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Broadway Radio, Audible. As you probably know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and now podcasts. We have highlighted Audible's work a number of times on Broadway Radio, and as a listener to Broadway Radio, you know that Audible has been supporting the development of new works through their Audible Theater initiative. So I think that the combination of Broadway Radio listeners and Audible Plus is a perfect match. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. Want to listen to Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge in Seawall A Life? Audible Plus. How about Certain Women of an Age? 
by Margaret Trudeau, Audible Plus, and The Half-Life of Marie Curie by Lauren Gunderson, narrated by Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradani. Audible Plus, and there's so much more. Audible Plus connects you to a ton of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. You can even squeeze in a workout or guided meditation without having to go to the gym or a class. Visit audible.com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio, all one word, lowercase, to 500 500 to start your free 30-day trial. We'd like to thank Audible for sponsoring Broadway Radio. So how did you get, uh, what was your post-NYU uh, Tisch uh, life? Or mm-hmm. Did you stay in New York or did you immediately move out to the West Coast or what happened? <laughs> I didn't intend to leave New York, but um, after uh, grad school, I was lucky to have a couple of different new play development, including my first time at the O'Neill um, right after grad school. So I kind of had the summer to bounce around and and always kind of heading back to New York. But the last place was in San Francisco, which is where I'm calling from right now. Um, and I found pretty instantly a great community, one of my best friends and a uh, wonderful playwright and um, and screenwriter, Steve Yaki, was out here already, had been out here for a little bit. And so I roomed with him and had a play at Marin Theater Company. And, you know, again, I said was working at South Coast, which is outside of L.A. and Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So it was like West Coast, West Coast, West Coast. OK, well, all right. <laughs> I never thought I would be a West Coast person. And um, I so I, I found a community that I still am incredibly grateful for and indebted to out here in the Bay Area, um, which, you know, I don't think it has a great uh, or not. That it's not great. Um, a very uh, rich reputation for being the theater center that it is, but it is a it is a city by the play. I mean, we are we have mm. so many theaters <laughs> of all sizes doing brave and bold new work. Um, so I was I found this place, and you know, after a couple of years of being here, I um, I think there was one year where I had six world premieres in one year, one calendar year here in the Bay Area. Um, six different plays, six world premieres. I mean, I was just, it just, it kind of happened that way, but it was bizarre. Isn't it the weirdest thing? And I, I just got, oh my God, this place is incredible. And one of the things that I think makes it that way is that um, unlike other cities um, or some other cities, they want productions. People here are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Readings. Oh, f- fine. Let's make the thing. Can we make it? <laughs> Let's make it. So in some ways it doesn't surprise me that um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the air, the Bay Area that you know makes so many things that become things we all use are uh, has a has a desire, a real thirst for full productions instead of just a ton of development. So that's certainly what uh, what what has been meaningful here. And and of course, I met my my husband out here, which certainly was a big draw <laughs> for staying mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Bay Area. And uh, the wine is very good out here. So. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about your husband, and uh, was he offended that you named your play The Catastrophist? <laughs> it was his idea. Oh, I swear. Okay. That is one of those tr- very true stories. <laughs> Everything in that play is some version of true, I will say. And he, in conversation, was trying to describe, um, this, besides the usual monikers of kind of virus hunter and scientist and whatever, and he was like, you know, I'm kind of just, it's about catastrophe. I just, I must, I'm a catastrophist. And I was like, and there's our title. Thank you so there's much. There's <laughs> the title. So explain what you, what your husband does. does uh, yeah. uh, what does Mr. Sure. Gunderson do? 
Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Lauren. Um, <laughs> So Nathan, uh, Dr. Nathan Wolf is my husband. He is a prof- was a professor for a while, but uh, is really one of the leading virologists um, of the world and has been for the last couple of decades. He is now uh, an entrepreneur, started a company that uses data modeling um, to basically plan out resilience to pandemics. So he is a specialist of this very thing that we are all in the throes of, um, which is part of why I kind of took the knowledge of being married to him for 10 years and um, said, well, maybe maybe this story can be what he knows, but also what he is and all the things around him that made him who he is. And um, so that's kind of where the play, the catastrophist that we're all kind of referencing, <laughs> um, uh, started streaming a little while ago and is, is out now and will be out for a while. Um, it is, man, that is a... The, wildest process to write this play and to share it so widely. I mean, we talk about a world premiere is usually one city, but the world premiere of a streaming show is the entire world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyone who has internet. Um, and so it's been, uh, it's been amazing and, and surprisingly controversial at times and um, wildly gratifying to see people from all over the world reach out and kind of say, Hey, we want to do this in Italy and Germany and Australia <laughs> Um, so it's, it's, it's been unlike anything I've ever written, um, in, intimately personal, not just for him, but the truth of that, the sneaky truth of that play is that it's actually about me writing the play. So it is as much about me as it is about him, um, so even more personal. The doing of it, the making of it in COVID times, restrictions, I mean, for those who haven't seen it, it's a, it's a streamed cinematic work, but it takes place on a stage. So we really wanted to make it look and feel like theater as much as we can. Um, kind of theater holding hands with film. Um, so that was wild to do that. Uh, writing, anyone who's ever written a one-person show knows they are hard as hell to write and keep that engine and that intrigue going without dropping it and then to release it um, in, in such a large stage has been has been a journey. But you mentioned controversy. So what makes mm-hmm. it controversial? Well, I didn't think it was very controversial, oh. but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> There has been some, it's been interesting, uh, the, the responses, and I, uh, you know, we can talk about criticism or reviews or not, but I, I generally have a policy of not reading, um, <laughs> the, the policy that always makes people giggle is that I definitely read the good ones and I share them like crazy and the bad ones are absolutely wrong, idiots mm-hmm. all, and should <laughs> not be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth is, you know, the whole like, well, if you believe the good ones, you should believe the bad ones. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, I shouldn't. What rule is that? That's not- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. that's right. Life, I agree. Life is too short art is too hard get out of my face if you don't like it <laughs> um, so you know but it, it's been interesting kind of there's a, a, a bit of vitriol and passion around this one that I find very compelling not just in terms of a, a feminist argument and is it does it is it too much for some people for a woman a wife to be writing her male husband's story is that just a bridge too far um, can you write about a happy marriage as opposed to one that's destroying everyone around it? Um, and and what is this new form of, is it biography? Is it hagiography? Is it, <laughs> is it totally not based on me? I mean, what, what are we doing here? Is it film? Is it cinema? I'm just, I'm confused. And so I think there is this, a lot going on and the responses to it, which will take me a while to kind of unpack all of it. But the truth is, I'm. It's true. I'm proud of it, and it is what it is. It's this new thing. <laughs> Do you think of it as hagiography hey, ever? Oh no, no. Oh good. <laughs> no. Anyone who would see it, you know, it really is about um, the the flaws that we have, and yeah. even the yeah. most brilliant among us. Um, and it's, I, it, it is, in some ways, the harder parts of it were the most true. Um, 
and uh, it is about great loss and the kind of shattering moments of your life that you think, I don't understand a way beyond this. Um, and for a dramatist, that's what we're looking for, right? We go right to those most stressful, most powerfully um, uh, crisis, chaotic filled moments of the character's life. That's what makes good drama, right? Because that's when we see who a person really is. As Aristotle says, it's what you do, not what you say. So what are they going to do in these scenarios? Um, but to do that based on your husband, your partner, your father of your kids, is it's a weird one. Um, and it required a lot of conversations with Nathan and I over the dinner table once he was like, so you're, wait, you're really writing about me? <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it, is, it was good therapy, too. Everyone should write a play about their partner. <laughs> well, I, uh, for listeners who are uh, wondering about this, The Catastrophist is playing at the – uh, the Marin Theater Company website, and uh, you can uh, buy a streaming uh, performance uh, through the through the end of February, through February twenty eighth. So get there soon, and it's uh, very inexpensive. It's thirty dollars to to watch the stream, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I, you had an interview uh, um, where you were talking about the catastrophist and where the artistic director of uh, of Marin Theater Company asked you to to do this and and you said no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so tell tell me about the process from no to yes because mm. any good salesperson knows that no is the first answer to eventually <laughs> getting to yes. Um well I didn't know that but that is good that someone out there is savvier savvier than I am. Yeah, I mean I I've been married to Nathan for a while and I've written a ton of plays about many other scientists most of whom are women, uh, most of whom are very dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> so to to think about him I mean, I challenge any writer to look at their partner and think, like, can you write about them? I mean, you can write some things, but but can can you write the hardest parts of their life? Um, that's a lot. And and also the dramatist in me knows, well, that's the good stuff. And that's what makes something universal. And that's what makes something really have that um that, that gravity to it. So, so yes. Yeah, so I thought about it for a little while. And then of course, here we are in a pandemic and I'm married to a person who's that's their job. So how do I tell that story? Um, but you know, y'all are, y'all are writers and you, you know, theater, it, it's not enough just to write a play. Um, certainly not at this stressed out, anxious filled time. Um, it's gotta be a play that's new. It's gotta be a play that it's exciting for me. Um, Cause I, I think I can confidently say I can write a play. Sure. I can write you a play. Um, but is it something that makes me go, oh, oh, wait, can I do that? Is that, hmm, am I allowed to do this? Wow, okay, let's try it. Those are the things when, and when this idea started to hit those buttons, I started to think, okay, okay. And that's why I mentioned early on that when the play started to be, in some ways, um, you are on the evolutionary track of this play becoming itself. And there are moments when the title of the change liter of, of the play literally changes in front of the character and in front of the audience. How is this? How, what, what rules of this playmaking are we in? Um, and I think that's when I started to have a, a ton of fun just as the, the theater nerd going, has anyone, do we do this? Has anyone done, I mean, somebody must have done this. Has no one done it? Oh, okay. Well, we're just going to try it. See what works. <laughs> um, and then of course the science and, and um, you know, doing the kind of real heart flow work of figuring out how do we test this character? And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it became something that I kind of knew I, I could write to something that I really wanted to write. Um, and 
And I didn't know exactly all of the, the, the elements. And I kind of expected at some point somebody to go, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know, Lauren. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about this ending? Can we talk about this one moment? <laughs> Whoa. Um, but uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I always say that I write for me first. Is it, is it interesting to me? Is it funny to me? Is it moving to me? And if it passes that first test, then um, I assume that that somebody else will will find meaning in it, <laughs> like I did. So, uh, so before Catastrophist, you, you've had many many plays uh, <laughs> that that you've gone to an opening night and you've had your husband sitting next to you, and the <laughs> and the uh, the play finishes. Has he ever looked over you and said and said to you something like, "Did you did that 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 section was that about me?" <laughs> yes. Oh, he totally has. And he's had to train himself to not think that every character is. <laughs> um, but yes, this one, of course, being a little bit different. Yeah, um, this is different. But yes, there is, there's a couple notable notable places in uh, one of my, um, a play that I co-wrote with Marco Melcon, Miss Bennett, which has had a, a lovely life in the regional theater. We love it. Uh, there is a kind of nerd romance and he is definitely, I've definitely used some quotable quotes from my husband to put in the mouth of that character. He was like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's a compliment. He's the hero of the show. Take, take the compliment. <laughs> so who, uh, let me ask you uh, as a writer, who's your professional partner? I mean, when you sit down, uh, I guess some things are commissioned, so that's different. But if you're sitting down and you're looking at a blank page uh, and you finally get some words on that page who's your next partner do you have a a, 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 a dramaturg that you work with an artistic director many artistic director directors do you work with specific sets of people yeah i mean um, i'm luckily lucky right now that there's a lot of commissions and so there is kind of a a set group um who i i send it to but when it's just this just a, a project that kind of bursts forth um that is unattached uh, I will often send it to, I mentioned my friend, Steve Yaki, who's kind of my oldest, dearest friend, one of the best writers I know. Um, and he also just knows me. And so he, he has the ability to go, you're doing that thing you do, Laura. <laughs> or, um, this reminds me of that other play of yours. Um, and, uh, and my great friend, Reggie White, who is an actor, and I keep making him and in, insisting that he's a, a director and a, um, and a writer as well. Um, so yeah, I, I have lots of lots of great friends um, that are uh, brilliant, and so I, I usually send it to them. But my 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 first um, call is usually to uh, dra- dramaturgs. I mean, God bless dramaturgs for for many reasons. But um, mm-hmm. but yes, I, I have a, a kind of cohort of <laughs> of people <laughs> I can I can tap. <laughs> You were just about coming of age when, indeed, Margaret Edson, another Atlanta mm-hmm. writer, mm-hmm. Um, had a great success with Wit. Of course, she didn't want to continue working in the theater after that. Uh, I guess she felt she achieved everything she possibly could, and she did indeed. But I'm wondering if you became aware of her at an early age. Was she at all an inspiration? Oh, God, I'd love yes. to. I'd love to hear you say that you were actually in her classroom, but I guess that's too much because she well, was a no. teacher, still is. But anyway, go on. So I, I, yes, I adored the play. And I do think there is a lot of that play in The Catastrophist. I hadn't even thought about it until you brought that up. But there is uh-huh. the power of direct address, the power of like facing down something you know is coming and not being able to change the ending. And, you know, that interaction, I think, is I, sh- I should call Maggie and tell her that. Um, anyway, yes. So <laughs> she um, and being a kind of theater person from Atlanta was shocking enough, but that a, it's a school teacher and somebody who kind of said, yeah, this is it. This is my this is what I do. Um 
And I was fascinated. So I wrote her an old fashioned letter and said, ah. um, I, I think I want to write plays and I just want to say thank you for your work. And I think I asked if like we could do a reading of her play at, at my school or something. She was like, you can tell you could, there's agents for that. And I was like, what's an agent <laughs> anyway. But um, <laughs> she delightfully as she is through and through um, invited me over to her porch wow. for tea. And I believe cheese was involved. And um <laughs> chatted and she basically took me seriously and took the invitation and the question seriously. This is why she's a great teacher, right? I'm at this formidable moment and I think she could tell that what I needed was somebody to say, you are a playwright. You've, you write a play. You write, you're a playwright. Welcome um, to the club. And uh, I will forever remember that conversation. And then I said I, I was interested in writing about Emily du Chatelet, the play that I mentioned earlier. And she and I said, you know, she's like, tell me about the characters. And I said, well, Voltaire is going to be one. And she's like, you're going to write lines for Voltaire. Maybe <laughs> 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 audacity. And I was like, oh, I guess that, it, wow. Okay. Didn't think about it like that. All right. Got it. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it's a, it is a, um, a friendship that I, I treasure whenever I go to Atlanta, I try to stop by and, and say hello. But, um, oh, how nice. That's yeah. great. I, I didn't expect the answer to be that complete, but uh, <laughs> that's really something. And by the way, Lillian Hellman, a, a female playwright, certainly played around with Voltaire when she wrote the musical of Candide. So, there we go. So there you don't go. have to be intimidated at all. <laughs> so you brought up that uh, you're, uh, that she was a teacher to you, mm-hmm. and yet, uh, I shouldn't say and yet, and also you are such a teacher of others. Mm. Uh, you do so many playwriting workshops and you give so much of your time uh, to help develop new writers. Um, how did that all come about and and uh, how do you fit that into your schedule? Hmm. I mean, I can talk for days and days and days about the why. How, about the why. Exactly. <laughs> about the why. I, I, I watched your playwriting <laughs> workshops. I owe you $199. Uh, so awesome. uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll Venmo but, it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think there is, it is just the, the engine of my life to, to wonder about not just how to write a good play or even a great play, why plays at all? Why do we do this? Why fiction? Why story? It's bizarre. Other animals don't do this. Why mm. is our species so driven by fiction? And we treat it as real. Is It's got a kind of real, but it's not, but it's, we're making it up. It's, oh my God. So I just find it the most fascinating conversation to be had because of how primal it actually is. So it, in some ways, it's just a gift to have people stare at me for a while. I just monologue about things I'm thinking about and ask them <laughs> questions and their questions spawn more questions. And so I, I'm, I'm very happy to talking about dramatic structure and specifically the idea of kind of unpacking that, that real anthropological genesis of this thing we do so much in every, every human society, right? We, we tell stories that we know are not true. We celebrate actors for playing people they aren't. Why do we do that? <laughs> um, and, and what is a story that is more than a fact? Why, why is a story more powerful than a fact? And sometimes it's for bad reasons, right? There's a lot of stories that have become more powerful than the facts, and that's a bad thing. And then there are things about stories that are so profoundly moving that remind us that this fact or this fact, um, we can supersede it um, with with goodness. So anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> I'm always happy to share them. Um, but certainly in that when the pandemic hit, um, it, it was a chance to just throw out community and conversation. And so uh, starting those Facebook classes 
was was a was a very gratifying for me, but also a, a way to connect with with a lot of people around the world um, who want to talk about theater and who missed it as much as I did, and you know were basically defiant uh, that this pandemic was going to stop storytelling. Um, so we found a way to to keep it going. You know, if you're, we're going to get into that, and we could talk for three hours on this, but now, <laughs> but then, how do you explain this fairly recent-ish? ridiculous phenomenon of reality TV, you know, where people need to think that something is actually happening and not scripted, Mm. even though it's ridiculously obvious that it is scripted, but (laughs) somehow being told that it's real makes it, uh, oh, you know, oh, I have to watch this. What is that all about? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's still, it's all story. I mean, somebody has scripted it and it's, it's honestly, when I write those plays about, it's very odd comparison, but the science history plays that I tend to write about, I think people are extra delighted and intrigued because they know it's based on truth and based on mm. history, based on something real. So I think there's some weird sisterhood between <laughs> based on a true story, historical dramas and <laughs> goofy, trashy reality TV. <laughs> oh God, maybe. <laughs> yeah. There's something, something in the human condition that doesn't, uh, uh, that sort of feeds into people wanting to watch that. I, I've not figured it out yet. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Not something I frequently reach out to, except for, you know, Great British Break Off kind of <laughs> reality <laughs> TV. That's about as far as I go in that genre. So you've also uh, done a, uh, as you mentioned, the Dramatist Guild. You've, you've, you've plugged for them a lot. You do a lot of uh, work for the Dramatist Guild. Is this... Uh, or is is this something that you recommend young writers to get involved with Dramatist Guild right away or? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yes. I think the resources are vast there. Um, and uh, it, it meant all the world to me when I was uh, a young person. And the question is always like, you write a play, what are you going to do with it? So they tell you what to do with it. <laughs> so when did you first uh, get your membership in Dramatist Guild? I, I honestly can't remember. I think it was probably 15 or 16. Um, and I remember the, you know, hard copy of the source book, which has a list of all the theaters mm-hmm. and all the place, the people who accept new plays. And of course, that's all online and searchable. And I was using, you know, bright yellow highlighters to mm-hmm. <laughs> circle things and um, printing out scripts and mailing them in envelopes, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it, it's the reason why I, I got some of those early nods and those nods kept me going and kept me feeling like there's something I'm doing that... That is some version of good and valuable and worthy. And so let's keep going. Uh, so I, I credit the Dramatist Guild with, uh, with a lot of that. What was the first play of yours that was performed that you got paid for? Hmm. Ooh, I think it was Parts They Call Deep was the one. That one I, I sent to a director who had, in between when I sent it to him and when he responded, had started a, a contest for Georgia, New Georgia writers. Huh? And I, I literally sent, he directed me in a play, when, you know, and I, I wrote this play in the meantime and sent it to him saying, you're a director. Is this a play? Did I write a play? Is this, is this what it's supposed to do? And he said, um, reached out and, and said, it is a play and it just won our contest for the best new play by a Georgia writer. And I was like, are you kidding? What? Is this how it works all the time? Is it this easy? This is great. <laughs> of course it was not that easy, um, <laughs> but it, it, it was, a um, yeah. And, and I, I, so yes, I, I think that sometimes it just takes a little bit of guts and a little bit of stepping into the void and not knowing you're going to hit the ground um, to, to make these big artistic leaps. And had I not been a bit brazen um, 
and and curious and all whatever it was that <laughs> got, got me to write those first plays. Um, but that one was parts they called deep, the one I mentioned earlier, which I don't even know where you can get it anymore. But <laughs> I don't know if I've honestly haven't read it in a while. Maybe terrible. Oh my gosh, maybe so bad. Um, <laughs> what's your uh, what's your routine now? <laughs> um, coffee desk as soon as possible. Um, mm-hmm. Luckily, my kids are able to go to um, in person school for the moment. So once after dropping them office. Um, I'm the kind of as early as possible kind of writer. Um, so if I haven't really written much, that's I consider decent by 2 PM, I'm probably going to stop writing for the day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah. And you know, so many of my projects these days are collaborations, which makes me thrilled just endlessly. Um, so a lot of it is talking and the kind of tiny writer's room that is uh, a musical theater team. Um, so the Jeanette team is con- constantly chatting and um, exploring ideas. I'm writing another kind of West Endbound musical that'll actually be announced on Friday, I think. Um, uh-huh. So that one will be, that's in the works constantly, just doing the work we can do right now. Um, and a couple of others working with um, Jariah Kwame in a new musical. And there's just a lot. And I, I think each kind of musical or play or TV idea or whatever t- takes its own time and has its own kind of journey. Um, so I like to be in the middle of a bunch of them and seeing kind of which one is finding its, its feet uh, and help it on its way. <laughs> we are uh, Kerrigan and Loudermilk fans here. How did you get oh hooked up with them? They are the greatest. Um, yes, I am. I am. I may be their biggest fan, but I'm sure there's a lot of competition for that spot. Um, so I knew Brian and I were set up um, to write a musical for the Kennedy Center, uh, and he happened to be. Um, Kate was writing a play at the time, and Brian was kind of like, "Well, I'm free," and so I was like, "Great!" Huh? Well, I borrowed him for one project, and then that, of course, got me uh, in touch with Kate, and so now we've done gosh, three or four projects together. Um, we're dreaming up a new one um, for that was kind of designed in this COVID time. Um, it's, it's a very small musical, but it's, it's a powerhouse subject matter of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor. Hmm. Um, and uh, so we'll be doing that hopefully when we can open things up a little bit um, and get, get that under our belts. And I'm just so, I'm, I'm just mesmerized by the music, certainly that Brian is able to lift off the page um, you know, she's just so smart and so full of just unstoppable emotion. Just the rafters are always ringing with her music. And Kate, of course, being just poet. I mean, she can be funny and and surprising um, and emotional with her lyrics. So it's um it's a delight. I, I love I love working with them. Hmm. Well, uh, about to wrap up here. Is there anything that we didn't bring up that you want to mention? Um, I just have to say this was delightful. Y'all are such great question askers and conversation <laughs> builders, and I could do this all day. Oh, good. We got a good review. I'll read it when you write it. <laughs> I believe in only good reviews. Raves around the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lauren Gunderson is just... Uh, one of the most produced playwrights in America and we can see why. We have Mm -hmm. all of her information in the show notes website, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Wikipedia Off-Broadway Database, Playbill, Broadway World, everything, anywhere that you you want to find out about Lauren Gunderson, we have everything in the show notes. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on a Saturday evening what to, a pleasure. Uh, it replaced the, the, the plays that we would be at normally. That's and true. Hopefully we'll be at soon. So. Yes. The sooner the better. 
Yes, you. exactly. Well, Have a good thank one. Thank you all thank for you everything. So good, night. good night. Bye. Good night. We will sleep high. try to get us. We're going to reach. I'll reach out for love. We won't sleep. No, not till it's over. Even with the blurry eyes. Baby, we won't compromise. I tell you, she's uh, Broadway's best kept secret, but I don't think for Indeed. long. I don't think I. I no, it has yeah. to happen. It's, Absolutely, it's just a matter of you know having some sort of uh, something catch fire there, and that's right. that's really sure. just amazing and uh, just wow, such energy and such uh, mm. such a delight, mm. and the focus on on the women's work and the progressive stances and everything like that. It's really wonderful to have uh, uh, somebody who is just. You know, we, I, I, I always wonder about the future of theater, but when I see the Lauren Gundersons, I don't worry about the future of theater. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. So, Michael, the uh, Mint Theater's got uh, some good streaming services coming up. Yeah, uh, continuing the theme of of uh, women playwrights, uh, the the Mint has been streaming some of their productions and really excellent videos. I know, um, I, I know at least some of their shows, at least one or two, were on PBS uh, as part of. Uh, there was that period when PBS was showing off Broadway shows, uh, and I'm not sure if all of these were or just some of them were. But the one that's coming up. This week, February 22nd, well, through March 21st, is Women Without Men by Hazel Ellis, which I have to say is one of the best shows I've seen in years uh, when I saw it live at the Mint. Um, And this is uh, the blurb is uh, Women Without Men is a workplace drama laced with biting humor set in the teacher's lounge of a private girls boarding school in Ireland in the 1930s. The play explores the clash of conflicting nature and petty competitions that erupt amongst the school's cloistered teaching staff. Playwright Hazel Ellis began her theatrical career in the 1930s as a member of the acting ensemble of the Gate Theater in Dublin. She went on to write two plays for the company, including Women Without Men, which was produced at the Gate in 1938. Despite a claim, the play was never published or revived until The Mint produced the the play's belated American premiere to much acclaim in 2016 at New York City Center Stage 2. Um, the New Yorker had to say about this production, uh, quote, impressive, very successful. The Mint's uniformly fine players, directed by Jen Thompson, get to sink their teeth into a range of juicy character roles. And the cast includes uh, Shannon Harrington, Joyce Cohen, Beatrice Tulkin, and Alexis Shane Nizia. Again, directed by Jen Thompson. So uh, please check it out. It's free. Uh, like as many of these uh, situations, they they would love it if you gave them a donation, but you do not have to. Uh, just go to minttheater.org. That's uh, mint t h e a t e r dot org. And uh, as of you know, beginning uh, the the 22nd this week, and just you can find it easily, and then they'll give you the password right there, and just put it in and watch it, and it's really fantastic. Yeah, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. David Gersten sent it over to us. Uh, Excellent. Uh, the other day, and so I'm glad that you brought it up, Michael. Yeah. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? An original Broadway cast album that was initially released as a vinyl record 
didn't even put the name of the show on the front cover, but just offered the logo. You had to turn the record jacket around to the back cover to discover the name of the musical. And it was Green Willow, the mm-hmm. 1960 Frank Lesser musical. On the CD, it does say on the front cover, Anthony Perkins and Green Willow, but it doesn't on the original LP. There you simply see tiny characters from the show under a green willow tree. All right, it's not just green. There's some blue, but mm-hmm. not a lot. <laughs> to paraphrase a Sondheim lyric, as there isn't much blue in the green of the tree. Anyway, Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Brigadude, Joss Israel, and bringing up the rear, Tony Janicki. This week's question, there are many lists involving Broadway. The list of longest-running musicals, Phantom, Chicago, Lion King, Cats. The list of best-selling original cast albums. Hamilton, Les Mis, Phantom, My Fair Lady. But there's another list, a very long one that starts with four names. The first name on the list is also the full name of a song in a late Rodgers and Hart musical. The second name on the list is mentioned within a song in an early Compton and Green musical. (laughs) The third name on the list comes in a song that Stephen Sondheim wrote while his show was trying out in Boston. The fourth name on the list can be found in the song title of a late Harold Rome musical. What are the four names of the songs? The four names that start this long list. And what's the list in which they appear in this order? <laughs> All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, uh, a few weeks ago, our musical moment was the Tony Bennett recording of Once Upon a Time, uh, that beautiful Strauss and Adams song from All-American. And the story there was that uh, that was intended to be the A-side of a 45 RPM single that was released at the time in the early 62, I think, Um, when when 45s were was very very popular uh and it but it turned into the b side of the <laughs> of the 45 because the other side was i left my heart in san francisco so sometimes things like that happen but in this case uh this week's selection is um a uh, a song that I guess was always intended to be the B side. Uh, the A side of the recording is is Downtown, Petula oh, Clark's. It's funny. I was going to mention this you know, in conjunction <laughs> what you're talking about. That is so funny. I had no idea you were going to do this. Go ahead. When were you going to mention it? After you finished. Oh, <laughs> <Go okay. ahead. laughs> well, Great this minds so think funny. alike. What yeah, can I ahead. say? Go on. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the A side uh, was intended to be and, and turned out to be uh, downtown. Petula Clark is uh, recording of downtown. But the other side is the song You'd Better Love Me from High Spirits uh, with music by you, Martin, and uh, music and lyrics by you, Martin, and Timothy Gray. Uh, and so. Uh, so that is that is our selection for this week, and it's interesting because uh, for se- several reasons, I think that Petula Clark would have been wonderful playing that role uh, in High Spirit. Mm, that's she, a good point. She, she really didn't do uh, stage musicals until later uh, mm. in her career because she was so famous as a you know as a pop 
as a pop star for so many years. Uh, so I, I'm glad we finally got her on stage in um, Sound of Music in London and Sunset Boulevard and uh, Blood um, Brothers. Blood Brothers on yeah, Broadway. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. By the way, I asked her about this, saying, uh, "Look, when you did Downtown and You Better Love Me, uh, which did you think was going to be the uh, popular side?" And she said, "We hedged our bets. That's uh, hmm. we we just took a chance, figuring we'll do one for the easy listening adult market, and we'll do hmm. one for the teen market, and whatever happens, happens." So uh, that's how she explained it to me. Well, yes, and it's and it's interesting also if you look at recordings from the uh, the transition era of between uh, the pre rock era and the rock era uh, that there were uh, you know even some pretty dedicated pop artists would sing uh, you know songs from still were singing songs from musicals. Uh, there's the famous example, of course, of the Beatles doing till there was you uh, mm-hmm. from, from the music man. Uh, but then I, I noticed I have a, 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 an album by Petula Clark and uh, it's full of pop songs. And then suddenly she sings, if I were a bell from guys and dolls. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's really, it's really fascinating to look back at, at how that transition took place and, and what, who was still singing what, et cetera. But I, I really hope you enjoy Petula's version of You'd Better Love Me because I think it's just great. I think I like the arrangement. I love the performance. And as I say, I think she would have been wonderful in that role. By the way, in The Odd Couple 2, if you read um, – hmm. I'm, I'm using the number two. I don't mean in addition to right. – um, The Odd Couple 2, the second Odd Couple. Um, <clears throat> if you read Neil Simon's screenplay – he talks about they go into a bar and he says a Tony Bennett recording is playing, not San Francisco. Who knows why? I mean, he just didn't want that to happen. I have no idea why. That's all I know. <laughs> Michael, when I got your email uh, yes. that said that you were going to uh, talk about this, I, I was in yes. a rush and I just quickly glanced at it. And um, a couple of minutes later, I said, that, that can't be right. I have to go back and look at that email again because I thought that the musical moment was going to be You Must Love Me from Evita. And uh-huh. I was like, no way is Michael picking that song. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't mind that song. Did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind that song. But, but yes, I see your point. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. You'd better love me while you may.
I know that you do. 